over the course of the retreat, we've been talking about the Noble Eightfold Path. And early in the retreat, we spoke about the uh, practice of sila, morality, which is a conventional reality practice, ordinary reality, person relating to person in a compassionate, wise way not to harm, uh, thereby overcoming the transgressive kalesas or defilements that cause so much ordinary suffering. I spoke also about samadhi or concentration, the collectedness of mind, which is the second training of the Eightfold Path, and it is the uh, development of mindfulness to some degree of continuity in order to temporarily arrest the defilements, and it brings a, a noticeable uh, tranquility or tranquilizing of the mind, which is in itself a great relief. Tonight I want to speak about the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the development of wisdom. And wisdom practice is the practice of vipassana, or insight. And true vipassana, insight, only occurs when one is experiencing and realizing what I'm calling the pixelated view of reality, the absolute experiential view. You can only gain the liberating insight that the Buddha talked about through realizing the um, absolute view of reality. The practice of Vipassana, the practice of insight, is the realization of what are known as the three universal characteristics. These three characteristics are attributed to, or I should say, all experience exhibits these three characteristics. And they're not that esoteric. The first characteristic is that things are impermanent. We know that. There's nothing particularly Buddhist about that, or particularly esoteric about that, or spiritual about that. Things change. Okay. The second characteristic is the characteristic of dukkha, which I will go into in more detail, but it generally means that, you know, things are painful or things are unsatisfactory. Things are unstable, partly because they change. Well, this too, with a little reflection, can be confirmed quite easily in our life. The third characteristic is a little more elusive, a little more subtle, and it is the anatta characteristic, often translated as selflessness, egolessness, scary. I mean, hello, uh, you know, egoless and selfless is like, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I personally don't think those two words accurately conveys what the anatta characteristic means. The anatta characteristic means that experientially things are ephemeral. They're evanescent. They're not very substantial. They're just a wisp of experience and it's gone. Or it can also mean that things are composed of other things. 
experience is conditioned by other conditions which are in themselves conditioned by other conditions no one of those conditions has an inherent solidity substantiality thingness that is ever present unchanging everything is made of little everythings all of which are changing because of little things that change that's how insubstantial it all is there's a there's a story of this western scientist who when looking through uh, either a very powerful microscope or finally coming to understand the tremendous amount of space in a single atom which is mostly space I mean there's a little protons neutrons and a few electrons floating around but it's mostly space got so freaked out he started walking around campus in snowshoes <laughs> so he wouldn't fall through the empty space well sometimes the anatta characteristic uh, kind of induces us into such well ineffective dealing with it <laughs> nevertheless in our conventional ordinary reality like we are here the understanding that things change is really useful we can take that and reflectively apply it to the conditions in our life finances politics relationships careers health and if we could if we could honestly face our life in these areas with the obvious truth that things change we would be much better prepared for the inevitable you know getting sick is not a mistake it's not an error it's the way things are we should expect it and not even be surprised and say oh finally you know, or as Robin Williams has already engraved in his tombstone, I knew this would happen. <laughs> it doesn't take, you know, a yogi sitting in a cave in the Himalayas for a lifetime to understand things like this happen. And if we prepare ourselves with just a sober, reflective review of our life and anticipation of our life with this understanding, we'd all be much better off. So too with unsatisfactoriness. We know the full moon is followed by the dark side of the moon. And we have all fallen in love with someone. Only later to find out, well, <laughs> there's a dark side of people too. They may not have changed one whit, but our eyes and mind have just become a little clearer. And it's not only people. You know that new whatever it was you recently wanted? Car, relationship, job, house, house. Get yourself a new house, you know, enduring and growing equity. <laughs> <laughs> That's dukkha. <laughs> you know, we, we know this. We, we don't need to set in years of intensive retreat to know that things aren't really don't really deliver on all they promise and if we gave any really uh, substantial thought analytical thought to the uh, composition composite nature of everything we'd see yeah things things are really just made up of other things and if we turned that 
understanding onto ourself, our bodies, our minds, our sense of ourself, we would come to some pretty, well, different ways of looking at ourselves in the world. But they'd be more realistic. They'd be more uh, honest. They'd be more, uh, well, actually useful in helping us navigate the terrain of life with a little more finesse. So clearly, just thinking about and cognitively reframing our life's experiences in terms of these three characteristics is not what Vipassana is about. It's helpful, it's useful, it's sobering, it's skillful to do, but Vipassana insight is different than that. Because in the development of Vipassana, we develop mindfulness, we connect and sustain our attention on the presently arising momentary object, and we recognize it by feeling its unique flavor. And I've talked about this in the past. The unique flavor of mental states, unique flavor of physical sensations, the unique flavor of cognitive processes, they all have their uniqueness. And that is what we touch with our mind through the development of mindfulness. When we taste this uniqueness and we begin to recognize it and we begin to catalog the display of uniquenesses in our mind, in time what we also notice besides the uniqueness of that flavor is that this thing formerly did not exist comes into view to be seen, tasted, felt, and then ceases. And it's not because we think it's impermanent or we've been told that things are impermanent. It's because we actually see this heat that I'm feeling now, I didn't feel a moment ago, and a moment later, we no longer feel. And the same with mental states. I feel irritated now. I didn't a few minutes ago, and in, a, in another moment, I won't. And this understanding, this realization comes not from thinking about it, but from directly observing things arise and pass away. Well, I could tell you that things arise and pass away, you know, and explain it. I could explain it to my six-year-old granddaughter, and she, she doesn't, she'd know that. Things rise and pass away. But when you see it with your own mind, something happens in that it registers in a way that it undermines everything that rests on the assumption that things don't change. So we see this changingness. We see this arising and passing awayness. And we begin to understand these three characteristics very deeply from, from realization, not from thinking about it. We see things arise and pass away. We realize they're impermanent. We see things arising and pass away. And because they're impermanent, they are unable to provide the kind of stability and satisfaction and security that we yearn for, long for, and pursue in our life. And because things arise and pass away dependent on conditions, everything is conditional. We begin to realize this, and our whole life comes into review. The past, uh, personal history comes into review, and our future expectations of our life come up for review. 
what we think is going to happen, what we imagine is going to happen, what we plan to happen, has to be adjusted to the lens of it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it's impersonal, or it's conditional. When we understand, even intellectually or conceptually, the three characteristics, we can begin to um, realign our thinking, our cognitive process, our planning. We can actually practice with more a, a more realistic understanding of what to what to expect in practice because when the realization of impermanence or unsatisfactoriness or the impersonality I'll use that word of phenomena is grokked when you when you get it it's not only the thing out there the sensation the thought the feeling the other person that is impermanent unsatisfactory and impersonal. It is also your body, your mind, your practice, and yourself that's also impermanent, unsatisfactory, and, well, not under your control. This is challenging. When your sense of yourself and your practice is unsatisfactory and not under your control, and you realize that, you still have to figure out a way and a reason to keep practicing. That's a challenge. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me speak a little bit more about each of these three characteristics. Anicca means that events or experiences are subject to occur and to disappear. They turn for the worse. They're momentary. They're not permanent. Initially in practice, this is just conventional knowledge. And we're unable to actually see that a momentary, uh, that an experience is momentary. But only when we're able to steady our attention, stabilize our attention, can we then see that things change, things move. But reframing our experience, helpful. Making, making adjustments in our expectations and our beliefs, useful, and reviewing our personal history in light of these, well, you know, it uncovers a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistaken beliefs, and we now can begin to understand uh, why some of our experiences in our childhood, in our early adulthood, in former relationships, just weren't satisfactory. No blame. No blame on you. No blame on the other person. That's the way things are. Oh. That really opens up a whole terrain of work to be done in the mind. Not blaming yourself. Not blaming someone else either. This is the way things are. Mm. I mentioned uh, this afternoon that Jack uh, Engler has acknowledged that insight practice is one long grieving process. And we do better at it when we learn how to grieve effectively. Because everything that we've ever known is gone. Everything we ever will know will disappear. Every relationship we've ever had or are having, or will have, will come to an end. That's a fact. I could just say, well, get over it, but this is, this is our life. This is who we are, is this vast network of relationships. And to let them go, or see them gone, or anticipate their going, it's painful. Painful. It really is painful. Imagine all your personal relationships are over. Where does that leave you? Well, pretty empty. And that's the feeling that 
grieving effectively confronts is this feeling of emptiness. It's just like the meaning in my life, the value in my life, the people in my life, the purpose of my life, it's gone. My life is empty. And it feels physical, it feels emotional, it feels mental. And it's really unpleasant. But once it is acknowledged, <coughs> once that feeling is allowed in, and you feel it, and you open, you just accept it. This, this is the way it is. It leaves the space for the next moment to be fully accepted openly with the mind that's not hanging on to anything else but just ready for the next moment. Whatever it is. Welcoming life with open-mindedness, if you will, because we're able to let go. If we can't let go, we can't be there for this moment. Can't make it happen. And it's only by learning to let go. And the feeling of grief or the process of grief is learning to accept that this is gone, this, this loss. It's, it's allowing yourself to feel the loss, allowing yourself to feel the emptiness. And when you do, grieving is affected. It's when you don't allow yourself to feel that emptiness or that loss that you can get caught in grieving for a long time. Because we just don't allow ourselves to feel how unpleasant that is in a fully, it fully own it. It's said in the text that impermanence, or the, the realization of impermanence, is hidden by the massive continuity of phenomena. Ula Mint spoke earlier about we were born, and imperceptibly, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, we have changed to become, in appearance, what we see in the mirror every day. Now, every day when I look in the mirror, I don't say, geez, you've changed since yesterday. <laughs> I don't think that. I don't say that. I don't see that. And I haven't said that from the age of four, when I started looking, probably, till 61. But somewhere along the way, it happened. The massive continuity of phenomena, it's just going on and on and on, hides the truth that things are changing. In Hawaii, we have uh, these traditional Hawaiian uh, dinners called luau's. You go to the luau and you have all kinds of Hawaiian, Hawaiiana stuff, you know, food and flowers and hula dancers and whatnot. Well, there's, there's these male dancers that have these flaming torches that they twirl around and pop up in the air and do all sorts of things, but it's always right at dusk when it's just getting dark enough so that you can't see them, but you can see the flame. And you see them light this, this torch on one end or two ends, and then they start twirling it, and you see a circle of light. There's a circle of light on the stage. That's your perception. The massive continuity of that light moving around in a circle creates and gives you the impression that there is a circle of light. But there's no circle of light. It's just the continuity of it that is hiding the impermanence of it. The flame is here, then here, then here, then here, then here, then here. We don't see the change, we only see the solidity. Well, the same thing is going on in our mind all the time. Looking at our mind, looking at our bodies, looking at other people, looking at other people's behavior, looking at our own behavior, and looking at ourself, our sense of self. Well, I frequently experience impatience. Yeah, I, it's my default setting. I, I was not born with the patience gene, you might say. <laughs> so, because I have seen impatience frequently, I naturally conclude 
I'm an impatient person. Now, as soon as you say, I'm an impatient person, I'm an angry person, I'm a loving person, I'm an anything person, you have eternalized a momentary perception. You've taken a momentary perception and said, this is the way it is forever, effectively denying impermanence. Not only do we do this with uh, gross experiences like emotions and, and sense of self and you know, self-reflections, even when you have, you sit down and you have, well, you have a good sitting or you have a part of a good sitting. You don't really think this, but the feeling is, this is the way it's going to be the rest of the day. Or you have a bad sitting, or you have a difficult, you have a painful sitting. You sit down and you get into a good screeching, painful struggle, and you think, I can't bear the rest of the retreat like this. We know it's not going to be that way in our minds, but in our heart, it feels like this is the way it's going to be forever. The heart eternalizes momentary perceptions really quickly. And if we don't see that that's what's happening, we'll believe it. And then we'll construct our life and make our decisions fully believing that things are much more permanent and much less changing than they really are. When a sense of ourself is conditioned by an intense experience, relationship, job, termination, that sense of ourself is difficult to shake. You know, we get, you know, we've all had difficult relationships and they end somehow and. we're unlovable and we're unsuccessful and uh, the other person's to blame, most of it. We have our own little piece, but uh, it's very difficult to escape from, I mean, because it comes up, it recurs. It you can't help but review the past and re- you have this recurrent perception of yourself as being unlovable, unsuccessful in, at life or love and whatever and well the subtext of the is that's the way I am that's the way I am and you know we struggle against it we don't really need to struggle against it all we need to do is acknowledge that it's just a momentary perception but it's hard to see the momentariness of it because as soon as that feeling arises we solidify it we permanentize it And it just, if it recurs a few dozen times, we assume that that's the way I am. And so in practice, it is repeatedly seeing, well, the obvious over and over again as just a momentary perception, a momentary perception, this is just momentary. Even though it recurs hundreds of times, it's not permanent. It's still just a momentary perception. When practicing vipassana, it's easy to see that the breath changes. It's easy to see that sensations change in the body. It's easy to see that emotions change in the mind. It's easy to see uh, the objects of our attention changing. But what is not so easy to see is that the observing of them is also changing. To use my three-dimensional instructional hand gestures, things arise and they're known. Other things arise and they're known. Sights, sounds, thoughts, feelings, the mental emotions, the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath, memories, past, plans. Things arise like that. And they're all being known. There's an assumption that this knowing is steady, that this knowing is ever-present, and things just arise in the vast emptiness of the mind. But the mind's always there. 
That's halfway there. The other half of the way is to see that this, too, is impermanent. Now, things changing is OK. Me, the observer, being impermanent, not OK. <laughs> Our re the realization that when you see this, when you see that the consciousness that is aware of changing objects is also changing, it radically pulls the rug out from underneath you. Because you see, you know, you feel, you realize the thing that you've always thought of as you, the last resort of you is, I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one who's here seeing this. I'm the one who's observing all this. I'm the one that this is all happening to, is not permanent either. This is a, this is a very difficult uh, stage in practice. It's actually called, one of, it's one of the rolling up the mat stage. It's where, you know, when you get there, you just want to take your, roll up your mat and go home because it's so, uh, so unsettling. Nevertheless, uh, with a skillful teacher, you can navigate this, uh, navigate this place. I remember years ago, and this is decades ago, when I first started uh, Dharma practice, I was hanging on to a relationship which was dissolving out from underneath me. And I was having a very difficult time with letting go of this uh, woman and, and our relationship. And I used to plead with her. Remember the way things used to be? <laughs> That's the way they still are in my heart. She didn't buy it. <laughs> I couldn't convince her. But it's how fragile my sense of myself, my, you know, I didn't see how I could, you know, just survive without this stability. Seeing insight, or is having insight into the impermanence of all things is so liberating. It just frees you from every unhappy moment you've ever experienced, from every dissatisfying relationship, from every shame, from every slander, from every fear. It's over. It's over. Give it up. It's not happening. And yet, so much of our life and our sense of ourself is based on things that we're still holding on to. Fear, pain, sorrow, grief, old relationships, old disappointments, old ambitions that just got thwarted somehow. It's over. You're free. But mostly we don't feel that. Mostly it's like a, it's like a struggle to have to accept it's over, and then we fall into the abyss. But actually, if we understand impermanence correctly, it's liberating. In fact, insight into impermanence is one of the doorways to the unconditioned. Deeply understanding impermanence allows the mind to just let go. Everything, not hold on. The second noble truth is our suffering is caused by craving, holding on. Meaning, if you stop holding on, craving and the suffering that it brings comes to an end. When everything is changing so rapidly, you can't hang on. When you realize this, you don't try to hold on. Then it's possible to come to this exquisite balance of mind where you're not chasing after anything, you're not holding on to anything, and it's possible for the mind to let go of everything, then the unconditioned can be realized. So rather than the doorway of fear and terror and emptiness and nothingness, impermanence is the doorway to liberation when realized through insight. The Buddha says, do not revive the past. 
Do not build hopes on the future. The past has been left behind and the future has not yet arrived. Instead, see with insight each presently arisen state. Know that and be sure of it invincibly and unshakably. Today the effort must be made, for tomorrow, who knows, death may come. No bargain with morality, with mortality, can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, day by day and night, it is he or she, the Buddha has said, who has a single excellent night. Anicca and permanence, the first of the Vipassana insights, or the Vipassana realizations, I guess you could say. The second is dukkha, usually translated as pain or unsatisfactoriness, which is so counterintuitive to our conditioning that, now, I don't think I'm the only one, but don't you have this kind of assumption or belief that if you could just get what you want, then you'd be happy? Doesn't that sound right? You know, if I could get what I want, then I'll be happy. Wrong. Let me explain why. Ordinarily, in conventional reality, we try to uh, maximize our pleasure, minimize our pain. We spend our time, our energy, our resources pursuing, seeking pleasurable experiences of comfort, of convenience, of health, of security, of status, of position, and stuff. With the mistaken assumption that if I could just get enough pleasure from all these things, then I would be unshakably happy. And we often evaluate or measure our self-worth by how much pain we avoid, like in a sitting. Go on a retreat, go on a sitting, go for a sitting. Inevitably, you know, if you're casually asked, how's your sitting? Oh, it's painful. You know, we equate pain with not very good, but actually, you can have an excruciatingly painful sitting and have exquisitely continuous mindfulness. So it's the continuity of mindfulness that's the indicator of good practice, not whether you're experiencing pain or pleasure. But nevertheless, our self-serving search for pleasure, pleasantness, in our life, in our hearts, in our minds, in our environment, in our relationships, is what is called samsara. Looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Looking for happiness in events and people and things that can't offer it. Not because there's something wrong with them or something extraordinarily needy about you. It's that things inherently don't provide satisfaction. This is painful, it's disillusioning, it's exhausting, it's unfulfilling, it's unsatisfying. This endless pursuit of, well, we've been chasing and getting and achieving and acquiring things we've wanted for, well, I'm going in, into my seventh decade, hello, and satisfied yet? When, when do we think we're going to be satisfied? How much more do we have to accumulate? <clears throat> Unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, has three flavors. The first is dukkha dukkha. Just as it sounds, it's painful. It's, 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 <laughs> you know, it is the physical pain that we all experience with just having a human body. You know, the human body is 
aches and pains and toothaches and you know uh, disease aches and you know when you get tired you ache and if you sit in one position too long you ache and and you know it's just you know it's unavoidable we try but it's still unavoidable there's also the emotional pain you know the anxiety Frustration, fear, rage, hatred, envy, loneliness, sadness, grief, alienation, feeling discriminated against, not receiving what you're entitled to, isolation, abandonment, stress. I mean, you know, the list is endless. You know, job security for a lot of you, I know. But nevertheless, it's... <laughs> you know, is there anybody in the room who hasn't just kind of got their catalog of dukkha dukkha? We, we all know. It's, a, it's unavoidable. We, we, we all experience lots of it. And yet, somehow, we still think that we're going to arrange our life in such a way as to avoid it. We try to. It's impossible. Well, it's experienced by all beings. When we take it personally that we're suffering because of physical, mental, emotional pain, we miss the significance of what the Buddha actually said. The Buddha said the truth of dukkha. That's the first noble truth. All beings experience the first noble truth, dukkha. But we think, oh, it's just my, my pain. If I could just get rid of my pain, if I could just get my relationship back together and get a little more income, and then, then I'd have it together and I wouldn't suffer anymore. Well, there's the second flavor of dukkha which is called Viparinama Dukkha. And it is the, it's, it's based on the fact that things change. And because things change, pleasure really is Dukkha. Because it doesn't last. Pleasure itself is not Dukkha. Pleasure is pleasure. It's not painful. But because it's unstable, we have to say, inherent in pleasant, satisfying conditions, is unsatisfactoriness. And while we may have good health right now, we may have survived the economic crisis, we may have already owned our home and not lost its equity, uh, we may have all kinds of pleasant, supportive conditions. But somewhere, just on the periphery of our attention, is this understanding that we all know things change. And no matter how good it is right now, we live with this level of insecurity that cannot be avoided when our happiness is dependent on things that change. You'd, any one of us could go to our next doctor's appointment you know, this week and get a diagnosis that changes our view of everything. Any one of us could get it. There's no age limit on getting bad diagnoses. And we live with that knowledge. If we're not consciously aware of that knowledge, then we're in avoidance, we're in denial, we're in uh, kind of delusion. It's not your problem it's not your fault that you feel insecure, that you feel vulnerable. That's the way it is for everyone. Well, as if those two weren't enough, there's another flavor of <laughs> dukkha, and it's called Sankara dukkha. Now, there's two views of this. There's the macro view and the micro view. The macro view says we're born, and our parents doing the best they can uh, provide for us. They feed us, they bathe us, they clothe us, they educate us, they love us, they coo us, they do the best they can until they can hand you off to your siblings or others, like <laughs> teachers, and then they get the responsibility to care for you until you're old enough to kind of take on your own responsibility. Now, you have to take care of, or we have to take care of our own body. And we have to take care of our own mind. We've got to groom it every day and dress it every day and bathe it every day and get the right amount of sleep. And you've got to take care of the body. Or, you know, if you don't bathe for a month, dukkha. 
You think bathing, you think having to take care of this body is a, a, a struggle? Just try not taking care of it. <laughs> not only that, we have a mind. The body's hard enough to take care of, but the mind, you know, you've got to keep the mind entertained. You've got to keep the mind happy, you've got to keep it distracted, you've got to keep it, you know, uh, kind of moving all the time because if you don't, it's just like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's dukkha. <laughs> and we know it from personal experience. And we have to do this. We have to take care of this body. We have to take care of this mind. And, you know, for, well, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades. Decades. Every day. 24-7, 365. Decades. You have to do this. And then what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it all goes in a box and goes in a hole in the ground. Bad investment. <laughs> because, I mean, we invest all this time, all this resources, all this love, hope, promise, everything, and it just all comes to an inglorious end, just like that. Now, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave, looking for happiness and pleasure along the way, We've missed the significance and the value of a human life. Because we can use our human life for much more than that. We can wake up and we can act with wise compassion in the world to relieve not only our own suffering and dukkha, but that of others. There's the micro view of Sankara dukkha, which is we have these eyes these ears, this nose, tongue, body, and we have this mind. And these six sense doors, counting the mind as the six, are constantly stimulated. Just incessantly stimulated. You can close your eyes and you still have visions. You can close your ears and you still hear sounds. You can close your mind and still vote. <laughs> <laughs> Erase that. <laughs> and you can't turn off the body. You're going to feel sensations forever. Even if you take drugs to try to get away from it. These sense doors are being constantly bombarded all the time. It is oppressive. If you could actually get it, it is just oppressive how incessant this sense door contact and stimulation is. What's the alternative? We don't see any. It's not for sale. You know, the alternative, of course, is train your mind. But in the meantime, how do we get relief from this kind of dukkha? Now, as I mentioned, if you think it's just your problem, you miss the significance of what the Buddha said. It's like, this is the condition of all things, all beings. Men have their dukkha. Women certainly have their dukkha. Kids, they got dukkha. Teenagers got more. And, well, adults got their share, and the elderly have plenty too. Monks? And nuns, we can attest, they have dukkha. Lay people, they certainly got dukkha. People who practice the Dharma, they got dukkha. People that don't practice Dharma, they also got dukkha. The red states got dukkha, the blue states got dukkha. <laughs> Hello, it's like everybody experiences dukkha. The wealthy have their dukkha. The poor have their dukkha. Where do you think you're going to go to avoid dukkha? It's said that the recognition of dukkha is obscured by continually changing your posture. Interesting. Because, think about it. How often do you sit still? Really, sit still. Well, only when you go on retreat. You know. And then we notice 
how much dukkha? Well, some people say, yeah, but why should I sit still like that and retreat? It only makes me miserable. It only makes it painful. And I would say, the sitting doesn't make it painful. The pain is already there in the body and in the mind. Sitting still and paying attention just reveals it. Sure, there's some sitting, sitting, you know, the first few days sitting posture, uh, discomfort, but that's not the real dukkha. It's the mind that's dukkha. The mind that keeps moving that's dukkha. In practice, it is not difficult to see dukkha. Sit still, pay attention, you'll find it. It'll find you, both in your body, in your mind, in your environment. It's just not satisfactory. We're always looking for something better, shifting our posture, hoping for a better mind state, trying to hang on to good ones, trying to let go of bad ones or unpleasant ones. It's just incessant. When we actually open to this truth, we open to this truth, by, because we see it everywhere. We just have to accept that this is the way it is. Well, this prompts a, again, a personal history review that kind of reframes all of those painful experiences that you've been thinking were a mistake in your past. But it also preconditions your expectations for the future there will also be dukkha there. Plan on it. Expect it. That's unsatisfactoriness. Plan on it. Expect it. Make your decisions knowing that. Jeez. What a bummer. <laughs> I mean, what a way to get converts. I don't think so. <laughs> Who's going to want to listen to that? Nevertheless, it's the way it is, isn't it? And through realizing this characteristic of phenomena, we actually begin to live more skillfully, with more wisdom, with less, expect, with less unrealistic expectation. We stop hanging on to that which we hope will bring us happiness to that which we fear will make our life miserable. We stop struggling with that. We stop hanging on to that. When the mind is seeing the dukkha characteristic in each moment, it just sees it, it sees it, it sees it, it sees it. It's not that every moment is painful. It's not that every moment is unsatisfying. It's that the understanding, oh, that this is the way it is, dawns in the mind. And the understanding of dukkha is liberating. Because it frees you from grasping. When you truly understand this is the way, this is the nature of things, it frees you from hanging on to pleasant experiences, thinking it will provide you that security and satisfaction. It, hang, it, it, it allows you to let go of unpleasant experiences fearing that they'll you know, be painful or, or, or stick around, you can let go. And in this letting go of the mind each moment, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, not out of aversion, but out of understanding, there's no satisfaction to be found here. It is then that the mind arrives at a place of balance in relationship to the way things are. Things happen. And when you're in a wise understanding relationship to it, you don't hold on. Then the mind has the opportunity once again, through this doorway of understanding dukkha, to access the unconditioned. Again, the three characteristics are the doorway to the unconditioned. Some of you have heard this story before, so I'll keep it short. A couple years ago, I was in the midst of difficult negotiations with the county on Maui. And I'd called for a meeting with some of the bureaucrats and 
the director to, to try to resolve a long-standing dispute. And things weren't going very well when the head of the department looked at me and said, you know, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. <laughs> In that moment, my mind just spun into overdrive, into anger, shame, humiliation, indignation, thoughts of revenge. It's just strategizing, what the heck should I do? I, I, like, I wanted to get up and run out of there. But thankfully, I had 30 years of mindfulness and insight practice under my belt, and I was able to sit there and watch it. And in, I, I don't know if it was 30 seconds, it felt like about three hours. But eventually, my mind arrived at the understanding, this is the way it is right now. This is the way it is. And it totally accepted. This is the way it is. This is the, this is the guy I'm dealing with. And the corollary of accepting this is the way it is was it can be dealt with. So freeing. Unbelievable. Think of it. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens, to have the capacity to bear it, full awareness, and arrive at the understanding. This is the way it is, and it can be dealt with. What is going to cause you to be stressed, distressed, upset, fearful? Nothing. The mind that is willing to accept unsatisfactoriness is free. The third characteristic, what's called the anatta characteristic, sometimes called uh, the, the, the impersonality or the conditionality of experience. It's like we look at our life as if it was a tapestry. You know, you look at a tapestry from across a museum room and you look at this picture on the wall and you see, you know, a, a and uh, the narrative is, you know, two women sitting at a table over a bowl of fruit having a conversation. That's the story. And you see it. And that's what's going on. And as you walk closer to this tapestry, you lose the perspective of the whole thing and you start focusing on just that bowl of fruit. You're so close. It's just the bowl of fruit. It looks so real and it's so... That's what you see. And then when the docent isn't looking, you get really close. Mm -hmm. And you get right up close to that tapestry, and you look and you see, <laughs> there's no story, there's no women, there's no table, there's no bowl of fruit, there's nothing but a bunch of threads, colored threads tied in knots, creating the appearance of this narrative. We do the same thing with our life. We aggregate all the events that have happened in our life, and we create this me the story of my life. It's just a narrative. It's just a story composed of the pixels of phenomena. Some sights, some sounds, some sensations, thoughts, emotions, memories, plans, events that have just kind of passed through, which we have woven into this tapestry, telling the story of my life. And as you know, the story of my life is full of suffering, unhappiness. Oh, there's joy and there's some, you know, there's some happiness. But the underlying flavor of it is not yet fulfilling enough. Well, to keep it short and to cut to the chase, it's just a story. No matter what story you've been telling yourself, that is causing you suffering, it's just a story that you've repeated over and over and over again in your mind, and you're hanging on to it. Some event, some memory, some plan, some disappointment, some fear, some anxiety, some hanging on, still suffering. 
story's over. The event is over. As soon as the mind can see, this is just a story. It's just made of a bunch of pixels and can disaggregate the story into its pixels and just see, oh, a memory, a plan, an emotion, a sensation, a thought. A the story comes to an end. And when the story comes to an end, the suffering comes to an end. When the story of your suffering ends, where's your suffering? It ends. Practice is to see the pixels of your life in order to slip through the weave and the knots of that tapestry that's telling you the story that's causing you so much distress. There are a lot of pixels. There's a lot of attachment. But as we pay attention, we begin to get a, a pretty comprehensive catalog of the range of emotional pixels and physical pixels and cognitive pixels. And it's just impersonal stuff. It's just stuff that arises due to other stuff, none of which is under your control, or very little of it which is under your control. The most we can do is monitor our reaction or relationship to it. That's practice. Watch your relationship to what's happening. Are you entangled in it? Are you fearing it? Are you attached to it? Are you trying to get rid of it? That's where the story takes place. Stuff happens. We can't decide whether it's going to be, you know, we can't make it be good weather externally tomorrow, and neither can we make it be good weather internally tomorrow. The weather of our mind, it's got its own pattern. Things arise in the mind, storms blow in, sunny days arrive with reckless abandon, if you will, just like the weather. We just have to bear with them. And when we see that just how impersonal it all is, how evanescent, it's just conditions. And we stop taking, well, blame for it. We stop blaming others for it. We start seeing, this is just the way it is. And when the mind is not identifying with, this is me, this is mine, this is you, this is yours, then everything can go by as just the impersonal condition thing that it is without the mind reaching, holding on, preferring this and resisting that. And when the mind isn't reaching and grabbing and resisting and holding on, and then everything slips by. Everything slips by. And then again, the mind can arrive at this balanced relationship to everything. It's totally unreactive. Not that we're not experiencing. We're fully, deeply experiencing. But we're not reacting to what's happening. It's then that the mind, again, can fall into the unconditioned, access the unconditioned, Nibbana. The three characteristics, when realized in this way, are the doorway to the unconditioned. Nibbana is a reality. Its characteristic is peace, and it is available. It's not only for people at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks or nuns that you know, lived in caves for decades. It's for people like yourself, householders in America, 21st century, or Canada, wherever you're from. You can practice, can realize Nibbana. And once you have a taste of Nibbana, the mind knows the way. It can find its way back. You might forget, but the mind won't forget. And it is this realization of the unconditioned, this peacefulness that the Buddha uh, said in the Third Noble Truth is to be uh, realized by each one of us. And the path for realizing it is the Eightfold Path.
Just what we've been doing here. You want a taste of Nibbana? Just keep doing what you're doing. It's available. If you practice. And let go. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.